You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm Dimitri Vitsa, the founder and CEO of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a PR firm that focuses on music and tech. And this episode of the Music Tectonics podcast, we bring you a presentation by Mark Mulligan, the managing director and analyst at Media Research out of, uh, out of London. Um, he opened up our Isolate or Innovate online event that we did back in May, and we're just starting to release some of the great content there. He did something specifically focused on lockdown economics and, um, and the coming recession. Uh, he talked about how the lockdowns have reframed user need states and the recession, which he at the time he said was inevitable, will do the same. So for example, he talks about um, pre-COVID concert goers had needs that were around connection with others, identity, and so forth. But since COVID, um, concert presenters need to be more focused on safety because of that's that's where the needs lie for people who go to concerts. Or another example he talks about in this upcoming episode, um, home-based working is leading to less commuting, obviously, which is leading to less boredom and less lean-back consumption. So he talks in this presentation about what the implications could be for the music tech and music industry overall. And uh, you really have to see his slides to learn more. And you can actually get access to the slides on the Music Tectonics web app. If you go to app.musictectonics.com, you can sign up to the community app for free and go to the exclusive content section. Not only can you get the slides, but you can also watch this as a video. Um, and at the end of this episode, I'm going to give you what we consider to be a sneaky preview of some upcoming news that nobody else has heard yet. Um, and you only will hear it here First, for our avid podcast listeners, so more details on that. Let's go over to Mark's presentation. Thank you, Dimitri. Thanks, everyone. Good to see some uh, some familiar faces out there. Uh, so thanks for having me. Um, I'm going to walk you through some slides in a moment, but just before I do, uh, we've got some brand new data, which we literally just got back about so like 20, 30 minutes ago. And there's a couple of things I want to put in there. That we, we asked people about you know, what they're going to do next, really in line with this whole sort of the new starting line thing. And a um, couple of little sort of, you know, take these as you will findings. One, people are looking forward to going to, back to work more than they are going to see, getting back to go and see concerts and gigs. Uh, if you're in the US, you're more than twice as likely to be worried about the health risks of doing things uh, post lockdown compared to uh, Europeans. And if you're in the US, you're 30% less likely to be looking forward to seeing your friends and family again. It's going to be a brave new world out there. So anyway, I'm going to um, move on to uh, walk you through some, uh, some slides and some of our latest research for you. Um, if you've been following what media has been doing for the last, um, sort, of, last uh, sort, of, sort of month and a half or so, we've been doing a lot of work really trying to create some real so solid hard data about how COVID is affecting things. And now we're moving to the next stage, which is what comes next. I'm going to walk you through here quite quickly a few of our sort of our big ideas. Often in our, um, in our presentations, you'll be used to loads of data. There's actually only one data slide here. Most of this is about trying to help you reframe the way we think about uh, the marketplace and thinking about where music sits alongside all other forms of entertainment. So there's two key areas which I'm going to be looking at here. The first is looking at uh, what we call recovery economics, and then next specifically about the future of live. 
So let's dive in. This is this is some this is the only bit of data you're going to see today. But this this is the data that we one of the surveys we fielded during the peak of lockdown, and we're looking at how people are changing their habits. So there's a whole bunch of other stuff apart from this, but this is maybe some of the most relevant ones for for um, music. That bit about on the right hand side, using the commute time to do something else, hold that thought. I'm going to dive into that in some detail in a bit because I think that's going to be one of the most important change factors that's going to affect music over, over the coming years. Um, we've seen people listen to more devices at home and this makes a lot of sense. The, the phone has underpinned so much of the digital content economy, particularly streaming music. Why is it so powerful? Because it's a convenient device that lets us do what we want, when we want, where we want. But it's not a particularly great device. It's not got the best screen. It's not got good speakers. It's not great for browsing and discovery. So when we're at home, when we've got better devices for doing things and better devices for listening to music, we're doing more of it. So this could be kickstarting a lot of the sort of connected speaker revolution that's been going on for the last couple of years. Um, and then consuming more music on YouTube. Again, if we think about it, YouTube is obviously very visual. And when we're at home and we're consuming our music on different devices and we've got screens open at the side of us, when we wouldn't be able to if we were sat on a, on a, on a train or in a car, etc. then YouTube makes a lot more sense. So the reason I'm saying all this is what lockdown did was it made people think a bit differently about how they consume content. And we see similar things across all other forms of entertainment. But fundamentally, we've seen some changes in the need states. And some of those are going to stay with us. Some of them are going to peter out. And some of them are going to evolve into, into new things. So like it or loathe it, a recession is coming. And some countries like Germany have already technically entered a recession now. This is, uh, I have a bit of a reputation for being a glass half empty guy. And so I was talking a lot about the oncoming recession um, towards the end of last year. <clears throat> and at the time, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't think a recession was going to happen. And to be fair, it, there's a good chance it wouldn't happen. But the underlying fundamentals of what was tipping the world towards a recession have been absolutely laid there by, by, um, by coronavirus, COVID-19. And so we've got three types of recessions that can happen. One is it's going to be like a, a bounce, you know, and that's what a lot of politicians are talking about. But in practice, Recession recoveries don't happen as bounce backs. You have what's called a carve out, where some revenue is gone for good. Some companies lose some or all of their business for good. And so the revenue that comes back is new companies creating new revenue or other companies taking some of that revenue space. So even if we get a bounce back, it's still going to hurt for some people. The midterm is a short term recession that maybe lasts for a year or two. The, the, you know, the organizations like the IMF are still saying that we'll be recovering within, you know, within 2021. I personally think that's optimistic, uh, but it will be accentuated by the fact that we're going to have more social distancing measures in place. Just think about all the travel we've, been, we've got used to doing. If planes are going to have to fly at a third or 50% capacity, ticket prices are going to go through the roof, so fewer people are going to be able to travel. Uh, you know, there's going to be many sort of unintended consequences of social distancing measures that will affect just the way that the global economy works. And then the third option, which is probably, uh, uh, you know, a, not a, a strong possibility, but nonetheless is one that we've got to consider, is a long-term recession that may even start to look something like the Great Depression. Um, 
so here we go this is putting it all into context understanding that we are going into a new normal whatever happens things are going to be different some of those behaviors people picked up are going to stick around we're going to have the impact of social distancing measures change in continually affecting business but for consumption of entertainment and consumption of music particularly the commute is going to be a vacuum so if you think about it when we're commuting it's time that's lost to us you know and if we sat driving there's very little we can do even if we sat in a train or a metro there's you know not that much we can do either so we we fill that time doing stuff which is relatively lean back it's stuff you can do to to kill the boredom and i would say that the, the music business becoming so dependent on streaming which has become so dependent upon the commute and you know filling dead time it's developed a a, a boredom dependency and we will clearly have as in mid-term effects more remote working potentially the long-term effects as well we've already seen companies like twitter saying that from now on no employee ever is going to be required to work in an office again that's an extreme case but you will see other companies go that way the safe bet is more of us will spend more of our time working from home which means more of us will not be spending as much time commuting. And we're not going to the gym as much because we're doing fitness exercises at home, et cetera. So we're gonna see more of this situation where a lot of the time that was spent streaming music is going to have gone. And if you remember that slide I started, you got between a quarter and a third of people saying they're using that time to do other things. You know, they're spending more me time. So if you're a gamer, you're gonna go and sort of turn on your console because it's time you couldn't, you didn't have before. So it turns out that a lot of those things that we did to fill the time when we commute, given the choice, we do something else with that time. And that's something that music is really going to have to respond to. The other thing which I think is really important for music, so here this is about streaming music, but music is actually going to have a, already having a whole bunch of other use cases opened up. So whether we're looking at the continued rise of TikTok, the growth of wellness and mindfulness apps, the growth of personal trainers on YouTube. You know, all these things have music in them, but it used to be that streaming services met that need with their context curated playlists. Well, actually, what better way to have context-aware music than actually have the context delivering that music to you rather than going to find a playlist to do it? So these are just examples of how we are entering into a new normal, which is opportunities, but there's also, you know, risk because as I say, in a carve out, the winners and the losers, the overall market might get back to where it was, but some of that stuff will be shifted around. What we're looking at here is a, is a methodology we've, we've been building over the last couple of weeks. And this is really trying to look at, as we go into the post lockdown phase and we start entering a recession, how are different entertainment types going to be impacted? And we score them on four different scores. One is how much is a supply chain being impacted? So for example, you can't really, you can't make TV shows or movies at the moment. And as social distancing measures um, are eased, there will still be constraints on how much you can do. Um, if travel is particularly expensive, then production budgets for sort of, you know, locations, et cetera, will start getting scaled back. So that's an example of how supply chain uh, score works. The need state is the underlying reason we want to do any of this stuff. And that's probably the most important thing of all. So I'll go back to that example of listening to music on the commute. The need state is I'm bored, I'm stuck on this train for an hour, I'm going to listen to some music. If we're only working in the office two or three days a week, it means two or three days that need state has gone. 
And then in terms of confident and confidence and monetization, confidence is the, the health confidence. How safe do I feel going to a concert? How safe do I feel going to a club or a bar or to a restaurant? And then monetization is how much can I afford this? You know, in a recession, if I become unemployed or my job is at risk, or if it is ad supported, if the advertising market starts to soften, which normally happens quite early on in a recession, then how well are you going to be able to support the monetization of it? So the key takeaway from this is there are winners and there are losers. Um, live sports and live events look like they've got some challenging times ahead of them. Um, doesn't mean they can't get through it, but challenging times whereas wellness at right the other end of the spectrum. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's organs blazing. So I would say in this sort of recovery economics, wherever you might map in that chart, there are four things you've got to do. You've got to reach the new need states, work out what it is that's changed about the demand of your customers and how you can adapt your proposition to meet that. You need to adapt to the lifestyle changes. If people aren't going to the gym as much, if they're not going to restaurants as much, if they're not working in the office as much, you know, you've got to understand how your proposition fits in with that new lifestyle. You've got to maximize consumer confidence, make people feel confident, make them feel safe. And then finally prepare for a recession. A recession will come, discretionary spending, which is basically all of entertainment, will be hit. That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to definitely have people churning at a high rate, but you will need to do things in order to try to ensure that you minimize the impact. You've got to recession-proof things. So for a streaming music service, that might be a win-back strategy. Sure, you've gone and cancelled. We'll give you another three months for free to keep you in. You know, those, those sorts of things. So let's uh, <clears throat> go for the, the remainder of this presentation, walk through really specifically about what this means for the future of live. And the future of live is so, so important. Not even, I would say, as much because of the, the companies in the live music value chain, but because of artists. We have seen over the course of the last 15 years the shift in terms of how artists make their living, the balance of that shifting from recorded music to live and merch, which is highly dependent on live. Um, other things as well in the mix, but live has become you know, the dominant income source. And streaming grew into this context, right? It grew into the context where live was where they made the money. Artists took a while to get used to the fact there's a big difference between selling an album and get most of your money over, you know, after sort of 12 months versus getting maybe less money, but looking at it coming in over the course of a few years. It took a while to adjust for that, but they did adjust to it. And they benefited from and enjoyed being part of the streaming economy because what streaming did was it got more people listening to your music. Your audiences got bigger, which meant more people would come to your concerts, more people would buy your merch. To overly simplify, streaming music was essentially like paid marketing for artists. You know, it generated a really nice bit of income, but fundamentally the most important role it played was getting more fans. Now that live is gone, suddenly artists are thinking, well, hang on, is Spotify paying me now? And that's why we've seen the resurgence of all of these debates about you know, whether streaming is paying out at the right rate it should. It's paying not that much different than it was uh, pre-COVID, yes, ARPU is coming down every, every quarter and that does tick things down, but compared to six months ago, artists are making pretty much the same amount of money from streaming as they are now. It feels different because a spotlight is on it because they're becoming much more reliant on it. That's why we need to fix live. So to go into the home straight of this presentation, 
if you're not familiar with it, this is Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. It's basically the things that make us do stuff. Um, and, you know, everything fits into this, everything that we do. And you go from, you know, this sort of, as you work your way up to sort of these higher needs. Live music before COVID was really about belonging and esteem. You know, belonging, I want to be part of something. I want to be connected to my favorite artists and the esteem. I'm at this concert. I'm here. I'm, you know, I'm experiencing this moment right now. Post lockdown, though, it starts playing into the safety needs as well. You know, yet we had that a bit. We had, you know, really tragic situations with terrorist attacks, etc., and, you know, and shootings, which have all, you know, made people conscious about the safety concerns. But it's been more of a just the risk with being in a, you know, with you know, being in a public space. Those, those things are very small percentage of happening chance of happening to you and so it's something which you know it's the same as getting on a plane and knowing there's a chance of a terrorist attack but thinking it's probably not going to happen to me with coronavirus all of us know that it can happen to us and that's why the safety needs of going to concerts becomes a, you know a really important part of what the changed need state is for for live music fans so we've seen the rise of live streaming. I'm not going to do deep dive into the live streaming sector because it's very well spoken about at the moment. But what I will say is, in some ways, COVID-19 came too early for live streaming. It came just in time for wellness apps. It came just in time for video conferencing. It came just in time for, uh, you know, for home deliveries because they were really well established. You know, we had behavior patterns really well established, but the marketplace and the value chain was really structured. The value chain in the marketplace for live streaming wasn't really structured. And so we've got this really, uh, you know, one, this is the word you need to use. It is a ridiculous situation that we had what was previously the most valuable bit of the music business in terms of the amount of money spent per minute versus the value to artists versus the ticket price has suddenly been transformed into this freebie giveaway. You know, and so if we are going to have a long-term situation where live is going to take longer to recover, we need to work out a way to make sure that live starts to monetize better in live streaming. We will see all these different potential models. It's going to be a mix of different value chains. At the moment, the traditional music com live music companies are not really a part of this new evolving ecosystem. So they, they're trying to get there, they're doing stuff and they'll do more of it. But this is going to be a rewriting of what the live music value chain looks like. And we'll start to see the emergence of um, virtual booking agents and virtual promoters. It's geared for these sorts of things. So to the point about monetization, we need to start thinking more smartly about how we monetize live. Um, and monetization is not just about what you charge for. It's about how we make the product work. It's too amateurish a looking proposition. There's so many top tier artists who end up delivering experiences which look really um, poor quality, not because it's in the living room, but because the picture quality isn't good enough and the lighting is not good enough and a whole bunch of other things. That needs fixing, but crucially, scarcity needs fixing. The reason why live works so well is it's a scarce thing that exists in the moment. And it's inherently there because people move around the country and they move around the world. So you only get to see that artist in your town maybe one or two dates. Live streaming is global, so you can get to go and see your that your favorite artist live streaming again and again and again and some are doing weekly some are doing daily and so you're taking away the scarcity so i think we need to think more cleverly about how we create different tiers uh you know and and, and ways to migrate people from the free to the paid experience i am not saying 
get rid of free. It absolutely has a role in the way that it has a role in streaming, but it should be a gateway drug to everything else. So to finish up, a recession is coming. We don't know how big or how long it's going to be, but it is coming and we're going to need to adjust to that. Need states are changing. If you do not adapt what you do to meet how people have changed their lives and how their, their, their overall consumption patterns are changing, you will not be able to, at the very least, survive, at best, thrive. Because we can be a time where people gain in this period. During lockdown, games companies, and we talked to with a lot of them we, we work with, saw record numbers. We saw Netflix beating its, um, its subscriber numbers, Disney Plus subscriber numbers going through the roof. You can thrive in times of adversity. Fundamentally, we're spending more time at home. More time at home means more time to spend time doing things, spending our time with entertainment, spending our time with any number of different things. So yes, this is a scary time, but it's also a great time of opportunity where if you think smart, then you can absolutely be looking at this as a way to not just survive it, but thrive through it. Thank you. Yay! You probably can't hear everybody else because they're all on mute, because we made you be on mute, but that's going to change soon. Mark, great. Thank you so much for those insights. I'd like to ask you a few questions. And for those of you in the audience, we'll also have time to take some of your questions. If you could put them in chat, please make them succinct. Maybe start with a capital Q and a colon, so I know it's a question, not uh, um, an introduction of yourself. But go ahead and start putting those in chat and I'll monitor those. But in the meantime, Mark, I want to ask you a couple things. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about live streaming. You said you didn't want to get too much into it because other people have talked about it quite a bit. But um, at our Music Tectonics Conference in LA, one of the big takeaways was the next phase of music was monetizing fandom. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how your larger view on that that kind of economic factor of the future relates to this live streaming moment yeah uh, absolutely so great question so there's there's a couple of things at play here so one is in some ways we've seen fandom monetized through things like uh tipping um you know which is integrated into a number of the live stream platforms um, i think that's slightly dangerous i mean they are you know becoming too it, it reframes the relationship between the artist and the fan. Let's just say some artists, they're finding things really difficult right now. They go to the fan base, the fans tip them for all of these, you know, these live stream gigs that they're doing. And then the artist goes on and becomes incredibly successful a year down the line. And they're driving around in nice cars and they've got a house with a pool. Does the fan then start feeling, well, hang on, would you have been able to do this without me giving you that $10 for when you're playing out of your bedroom? Yeah, so I think that's a you know a thing that every artist has got to understand going into it is think about how what this is doing for the relationship and it's fine and for a lot of artists it will be fine but you need to understand the potential permutations down the line. I think there's another thing as well which is we just don't have many ways of monetizing fans right now and that hasn't changed since the the Tectonics conference. Um, but we've got great ways to do it in China. We've got great ways to do it in Japan and uh, in South Korea. But, you know, so the Asian market show really great ways to do it. We've got it in the West, not in music. You know, Fortnite is a fandom platform. People buy skins and emotes, et cetera, because it's a way of expressing who they are. You know, look at all those kids who went out and bought marshmallow skins and emotes once you know, he'd done that gig. 
So as we look for, you know, the future of live streaming, I'd say it's virtual conferences, uh, virtual concerts rather than live streaming, because there will be live streams the way we see them. There will be things that look, you know, more like the Travis Scott concert. There'll be things in between. Platforms like Fortnite, which have the ability, essentially built in virtual merch stores. They're the sorts of things which we, you know, we will prosper near term, long term, every live streaming platform should be working at how it can do virtual merch. And, you know, whether that be something really basic like selling stickers, through to giving you the equivalent of the frontline seat, you know, in the, you know, in, in the live stream concert and sort of scarce experiences with your favorite artists, et cetera. So I think it's early days, huge amount that can be done um, and now's the time to do it. Great. You know, I think I will let some folks, uh, Jack Disserens, if you're ready, would love to, if you come on camera and audio and continue your question, um, I think he wanted to ask a little bit more about what is the new live, but I'd like to hear more from him and, and uh, CY Lee, if you can get ready to ask your question. Is that you, Jack? Say hello. Oh, you can't. There you go. Hey there. Um, yeah, I think you kind of just touched on it a little bit, but I just want to know, is the question more broad around what is the new live or, or is the, the question more so how can we just open up as many new revenue streams as we can can for artists, even if it's not technically live, maybe it's pre-recorded stuff. Um, is it a more broad sense of the question? Yeah, yeah I mean, so I, like, I like the question, what is the new live as well? Because we talked about it a little bit, but what's going to happen in the longer run, you know? Yeah, so I think at this, this point in time where we've still got a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen with the economy and what's going to happen with the virus, we essentially have to do contingency planning. And that's really the point I was trying to make here, which is let's prepare in a way that lets us deal with whatever comes to us. So best case scenario, by the start of next year, life is back to how it was and everybody's going to full capacity concerts and there's no issue. A reasonable assumption is that that won't happen that social distancing measures will start to ease, but then we'll probably, we may well get a resurgence of the virus. It might just come back uh, in big waves, like it did with Spanish flu back in 1917 and 18, where there were four major waves. Or it might be just something that's continually in the background and it changes, reframes people's ideas of being in public places. So I think that's why building all of these alternatives to being in a venue are really important because either they just become this long-term additional string to the bow or they become a really important short to mid-term way of filling some of the gap which we made by uh, you know by, by concerts not being able to take place in the way that they used to i do think there's a uh, you know but that what is live as a whole i think the you look at again tencent music in china and look at the majority of their revenue is coming from vip slash fandom products and live streaming so you already have this really proven model in China where fans will pay an absolute premium to get a live moment with their favorite talent, whatever it might be, social talent, artist, whatever it might be. And it just exists there virtually in that moment. So we can do it. Now, will it happen in the same way, you know, in the West as it has in China? Maybe, maybe not, unproven. But Fortnite has shown us that that model, which was previously one which couldn't work, mainstream in the west beyond core gamers can work and you know took a lot of its learnings from you know from the east so i think to answer your question succinctly yeah this is about the entire future of live it's not saying that concerts are going to disappear what it is saying is concerts at best will come back next year 
as they were, or at worst, it's going to take even longer. So let's work out what else we can do until then. Awesome. Hey, Jack, thanks for the question. And uh, we're going to go to CY Lee. Uh, if you could come on audio, uh, CY, that'd be great. So hi, uh, my question's about uh, scarcity or uh, making, uh, or see what are the, what are some good examples of scarcity within the digital realm that you've seen, Mark, uh, given that it's no big secret that um, streaming is sort of like, there's a presumption that it's fundamentally unscarce. Um, how have people created in the, in the US context that sort of, or the Western context, that sort of VIP experience that, that doesn't feel overly contrived? Yeah, so <clears throat> there was actually one of my favorite examples of this was a, uh, Company they're still going, but they're not they're not a particularly big company. But they were doing some really interesting stuff a few years ago. A company they called Disciple Media, and they were making artist subscription apps. And what you used to do in the artist subscription app, you'd subscribe, and it'd be something like a dollar a month or uh, or three dollars a month, depending on how much the artist was charging. And you get a bunch of different stuff from that. And there'd be things like <clears throat> you know sort of discounts and merch and all the normal sort of stuff you get in fandom clubs. But what they also did was they did live streams. Now that might be a live stream with the artist, it might be a live stream with a concert, but you could only get it if you were a paying member of the app rather than just a free member of the app. And I saw, you know, I, I, I was trying out the app for a few, you know, looking at a few artists, and I saw two things which just absolutely hammered home to me, the value of creating digital scarcity. One was, um, uh, well, both were a band called Suicide Silence, and one was just where the guitarist just went down, he was down in his local guitar shop, and he just set up his phone, live streamed, and he was just there with his guitar, chatting and showing people, you know, riffs and, you know, and just chatting to them and, and sort of talking about guitars and whatever else. And the live stream, you know, there were about 100 people there. And for them, it was that moment where they could talk to their favorite guitarist about how to play that solo and, you know, and what, you know, what effects he uses. And, you know, and he was a bit awkward about it. And that was, that's what made it magical, right? It wasn't this big hugely nicely produced sort of TV-like experience. It was just people felt they were there with their, their artist then. And the other was uh, Suicide Silence were playing a, a, a smallish gig in the UK. And instead of it being this sort of, you know, again, high production value live experience, somebody had hold of the phone and they were backstage with the band. And the band were drinking a few beers before going on and they were just chatting and it was just like a fly on the wall. And then his band walks on stage, the guy with the phone walks on stage with the band, the phone's looking, over the shoulders of the band as they go on stage and all the crowds going. And then the guy with the phone jumps into the mosh pit and moshes around a bit. Then he goes up to the lighting rig and the comment stream was, you know, these sort of kids from Sao Paulo and sort of Mexico City who would never have that opportunity to go and be there with that gig. But they felt like they were almost like within touching distance of their favorite artists. So the reason I've used those two examples is because they are incredibly low tech. It doesn't need to be sophisticated. You just got to make something that feels to the user, to you know, to the fan that I'm getting something here, which isn't going to exist again after this moment. So it's really, I think, scarcity is. You can, sure, you can do limited edition and stuff, but the value of scarcity in live is it only exists now. I can watch a video of it. It's not going to be the same as being there in that moment. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Cy. Thanks for your question. Thanks for being here and for being a big music tectonic supporter. Nice to see your face. Um, we've got a lot of questions about live, but, uh, and we're going to go to uh, Jessica Lawson in a sec, uh, who has another question, but uh, real quick, Mark, if you were, if you were running a record label right now, what would you be taking away from this presentation and um, from what you're thinking about a lot, or an artist manager, artist, anything like that? Uh, they're two really different questions, so I'll answer them separately. But on a record label, I'm thinking, 
right, there's all of these new ways that people are putting music into what they do. You know, with it, like I was reading examples of wellness apps and, you know, and YouTube fitness experts, etc. And I want to make sure how I can do more with that. First of all, the real basics is, is it licensed properly? Am I getting paid? And that, you know, is even with live streaming, there's a lot of that going on as well. You know, so but that's, a, the, that's just the, the hygiene factor. The opportunity is, what more can I do with it? You know, and it's, and I'm not quite sure it's going to work, but it's a really nice idea. You know, Universal Music have just done a partnership with Lego, you know, and they're going to work out how they can bring, you know, sort of music into you know, Lego experiences. That's the sort of thing. Just, it's like, if, to use your, you know, your, your analogy, Dimitri, about how this is a starting line. So let's just say the starting line was, we got the digital music market going with streaming, right? So we've just got the engine started. Now let's work out where we can take the car. And in terms of the, you know, sort of artist managers, um, right now it's firefighting. It's like, how can we make sure there's going to be enough money, make sure that the bills are paid, you know, and that, that is, there is no easy answer to that because it's, you know, it's going to take time for life to come back. Streaming royalties is not a problem that's going to be fixed overnight. You know, that's going to take a while. So I'll be looking at all these other things, you know, so, uh, you know, and equally thinking as laterally as, you know, sort of universal with Lego, is there some wellness app where I can, you know, go and do something with them and sort of, you know, or is there, is there you know, some sort of social influencer I can go and do something with? Are there other places where I can go and find my fan base? Can I be making sort of weird, crazy bits of merch that people are going to want to buy that, you know, sort of, a, you know, lockdown merch, whatever it might be. The key essence is throw a load of stuff at the wall and see what sticks because for the next six plus months, live revenue is not going to be filling the gap in the way that it used to. Thanks for answering that, Mark. Jessica Lawson, why don't you come on, unmute yourself and uh, ask your question. Awesome, thank you. Um, so I, I'm curious where you see the direction of live music streaming and VR going. Um, you know, talked a bit about the, like the rise of gaming and the intersection of music and gaming. Um, you know, people are spending more time at home and, and what you just mentioned about um, the fandom and you know, the kid in Mexico being able to, to watch one of his favorite artists. Um, so I'm curious what you're seeing in that space, especially since I saw Apple made an acquisition the other day too of a live streaming company. Yeah, great. So I think I'll, I'll go like almost like a pre-question, which is there, is there is a problem with live streaming at the moment and that's discovery. So bands in town are doing a great job of trying to be this place where you can you can tap into stuff but we essentially we need an epg for live streaming we need a way to discover it we've got really great ways to discover music on streaming services because they've each all gone and built their own discovery but live streaming is always going to be inherently fragmented across different platforms we need something that just glues it all together so we know what's on and where and how to find it and we're not going to miss the, you know uh, concerts by our favorite artists etc so that needs to happen first discovery is a big thing that needs to be fixed with live streaming but then moving on to, you know, things like VR and AR, it's probably come a bit too soon for VR. And you mentioned about Apple. Apple has been making a big bet behind the scenes on VR. And, you know, and it's going to, we should hopefully see something next year, you know, that, you know, and, and normally when Apple does something, it's when it's ready for prime time and it does it in a way that opens it up to a mass market. So it's probably come a little too early for that. I know there's stuff happening and there's a couple of the, you know, sort of the, the uh, VR companies are talking about, you know, what success they've been having. But we do have this long-term thing where live music doesn't become as big as it was for quite a while. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen. I'm just saying it's a scenario we've got to consider. 
then yeah, there's a really strong case for accelerating a lot of the VR stuff and the AR stuff and trying to work out whether there's ways you can make it feel immersive. But to date, so much of the live VR stuff has not been that. It's essentially been 360 video. It's just felt really flat. So if you're going to force somebody to spend some money on a headset and put it on themselves, you've got to make sure there's a really good reason for it. It's got to be something where they really feel, wow, this is so much better, so much more like being there. And at the moment, I would argue that live VR experiences aren't yet there. Great. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Mark. Uh, we're going to move over to Ted Cohen. Can you get your audio off mute, Ted, and ask your question real quick before we move into the app? Hey, there you are. Okay. Hi, Mark. How you doing? Yeah. Really good question. When all this happened, there was a certain degree of authenticity. Uh, somebody with an acoustic, whether it was Garth Brooks or whoever, with an acoustic guitar, a mic, a great song, and, a, and hopefully a great voice, the more produced these have gotten, for me, the less interesting they've been. And there's this tendency to, you know, one-up everybody usually in, in, in the live concert business. What are your thoughts on, I mean, do you agree or disagree that the more cool they try and make them, the, the, the less engaging they are? Yeah, so you, you've hit upon a really important thing. <clears throat> why, why did we like those more earthy, um, organic performances? Because it was different. It wasn't being, oh, look, here's a live concert done from somebody's bedroom. It was, here's my favorite artist playing for the bedroom. It was this intimate connection with them. So the more produced that we go, the more that they're becoming, this is like a more limited version of what I'd normally pay to go into, you know, into a theater to go and see. And that is gonna be a really important challenge that we're gonna to have to work out how to solve if live streaming is gonna become a meaningful mid to long-term revenue generator for the industry. Because we're probably gonna to need to do both things right. It's, you're always going to have to like segment what live stream concerts are. One is something which is trying to replicate the live experience, and the other is that intimate connection between the artist and the fans. Uh, and you know, and there might be you might get a value inversion, right? Where it used to be, the bigger the venue, the more money you're paying because it's the big live experience. Maybe they're the things in a digital environment that actually they're just the things you watch for free on YouTube. The thing that you actually pay for is when only 100 of you are able to get passive to go and watch your favorite artist sit down with the guitar you know, in the living room. So I think th this is why I was saying earlier on, coronavirus came too early for live streaming. It hasn't become properly structured as an industry yet. We haven't got tiers of products. We haven't got an idea you know, what different size events should be and what, how to create scarcity and monetize or whatever else. But really, you know, one of those really important bits is an artist playing just to their core fans versus to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands on YouTube, they should be different things. Because that artist who, you know, is the value of seeing an artist when it's only say 100 people allowed to get there, would they normally would play to 30, 40,000 people? You're paying for that exclusivity. That's like a VIP members club, but you're in their front room. So anyway, so yeah, long way of staying, absolutely agree. Um, and essentially what we're seeing with all that one-upmanship is this industry trying to define itself. 
And that's it for this episode of Music Tectonics. You listened to a presentation from Mark Mulligan, Managing Director and Analyst at Media Research. They've always got great reports and webinars and um, great, great to follow the content they do. And and he was great to give us a, a preview into some of the stuff that he's presenting via the Isolate or Innovate event that Music Tectonics ran in May. As I said at the beginning, I uh, promised you that there was a sneaky preview for you. I mentioned you can get the slides and video of that presentation at the Music Tectonics app. What I did not mention, because we're really not announcing it until July 13th, but since you're an avid podcast listener, if you listen to the bitter end here, I'll let you know we now have the app available in the store, and the app experience for the Music Tectonics community app is amazing. So please come check it out. You can find it on Android or um, iOS, Apple, iPhone, um, whatever you prefer. So check out Music Tectonics. It's just cool that you can now go to the app store and search for Music Tectonics, and not only does something come up, but a really good app where you can ask questions, interact with people, network. Um, we've got hundreds of folks signing up. Every every week we've got more and more. So hope you can join as well. You can also go to app.musictectonics.com. Again, go to the exclusive content section for the slides to this Mark Mulligan presentation, but also um, join all the different groups that are there to uh, keep up with news in the music tech scene, to network, to ask or answer questions with other innovators in the music technology scene. Thanks so much for listening to Music Tectonics. You're listening to Music Tectonics.